You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. Appreciate so much the opportunity to come and break open God's Word. And uh, before we do that, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father, as the song just said, we do indeed thank You. We thank You that we have access to Your throne of grace, uh, not by any merit of our own, but by the merits of Your Son, what He did for us on Calvary's tree. And Father, we pray that You would go with us now in this time. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would guide us into the truth of Your Word, that He would sanctify us in Your truth, conform us more into the image of Your Son, Christ, and that we would live lives of obedience, and we would glorify You in so doing. These things we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm guessing you already have your copy of God's Word open to the uh, to the Gospel of what? Excuse me, the Gospel. I'm so accustomed to the Gospel of John. Sorry to say, Gospel of John, Um, the Book of Daniel, Book of Daniel. That your bulletin says that the title is God is in control, and I was uh, talking with my better half, my helpmate, and. And uh, Kathy said that was a rather boring title. I've never been I've never been accused of being creative. That is not an accusation that has often been railed against me, creativity. So uh, I decided uh, she was indeed right. So I came up with a another title. If you want to maybe jot it down, Yahweh, our sovereign rewarder. Yahweh, our sovereign rewarder, because that uh, God's sovereignty and the fact that He rewards obedience are kind of the two main themes of this opening chapter in Daniel. Daniel is Daniel is one of the most significant prophetic books in all of the Bible. And uh, it also contains a great deal of practical truths, but it's very, very prophetic. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, uh, Daniel foretells the exact time that the Messiah would come and present himself to Israel. He, he, he predicted the exact time that that would happen, and he did this 600 years, almost 600 years before the fact. And so Daniel is very, very prophetic. It also has a great deal of practical truths, but it's very prophetic. Uh, a little bit of background information about Daniel. The author of Daniel is Daniel, and that may seem rather obvious, but uh, the, the authorship of Daniel has been really attacked. It's been attacked by a lot of liberal theologians, and they say, oh, Daniel did not write Daniel. It's not possible that Daniel could have written Daniel. And they say the reason it's not possible that Daniel wrote Daniel is because Daniel is so very prophetic. And it it prophesies events hundreds of years into the future, prophesies them with, with pinpoint accuracy, and so the liberal theologians say, no, that, that, it's not possible that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel because it has, it gives prophetic statements, that some of which have actually 
come true. Of course, to make that assertion, you have to completely ignore the fact that God is sovereign and God knows the future. Not only does he know the future, but God is ordaining the future. And so these liberal theologians attack the authorship of Daniel simply because it is prophetic and some of those prophecies have already come true. Jesus, however, affirms the authorship of Daniel. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking about future events, eschatological things, and Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, which was foretold by Daniel the prophet. So, liberals reject Daniel's authorship. Jesus affirms Daniel's authorship. Uh, so, between the liberal, egg-headed theologians sitting up in their ivory towers, between them and the person of Jesus Christ, I'm going to go with the latter. Uh, Daniel did and write the book of Daniel. Daniel, interestingly, is only one of two major personalities in the Bible, aside from our Savior Christ, but he's only one of two major personalities in the Bible of whom nothing negative was ever said. Nothing negative was ever said about Daniel. Can't say that about Moses. Can't say that about Abraham. Can't say that about Isaac. Can't say that about Jacob. One of the strengths of the Bible is that the Bible, unlike other works of ancient literature, never hesitates to record the failures of its own characters. The Bible never does that. But only Daniel and Joseph, Joseph was the other one, only Daniel and Joseph are the two main, uh, two major personalities in the Bible that nothing negative was ever said about. Daniel was a very, very godly man. Very godly man. The theme of Daniel it's found in a verse in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 17. Daniel says this, The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Daniel has a very high view of God's sovereignty. Uh, probably unparalleled in the Old Testament, maybe with the exception of the book of Isaiah. But Daniel and Isaiah are the two books in the Old Testament that I would say have the highest view the most lofty, detailed, uh, exalted view of God's sovereignty. And we will see this as we work our way through the text. Now, what's going on in the book of Daniel? What's happening historically as Daniel's book opens? Well, Israel had been clamoring for a king. They wanted a king. They complained to God. So all the other countries around us, they've all got kings. We want one too. And so God finally gave them what they wanted. Sometimes God gives us what we want, even though it may not be best. So God says, okay, Israel, you want a king? Here's your king. Here's Saul. And Saul's reign was marked by partial obedience at best. And partial obedience, of course, is disobedience. After Saul, then it was David. David came along, and he was the king of Israel. He reigned for 40 years. And Daniel, of course, I mean, excuse me, David, of course, is a man whose life, uh, we all remember, was marked by one very horrific, horrendous sin. His sin with Bathsheba. And he had Bathsheba's uh, wife, excuse me, husband, killed by sending him to the front line. Horrific, horrendous sin. And yet, David's life was also marked by genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. If you want an idea of what genuine repentance looks like, 
read Psalm chapter 51. Read Psalm chapter 51 when David confesses his own sin and he says to, to the Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Heart-wrenching, genuine repentance. Yes, horrific sin, but God granted him genuine repentance. Read through Psalm 51 and see if you have come to a point in your life when you have had that kind of genuine repentance. You've expressed that genuine sorrow, godly sorrow over your sin towards God. And after David, Solomon, Solomon reigned for 40 years. And then at the end of Solomon's reign, then Israel was divided. There became two kingdoms. The ten tribes of Israel formed uh, the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel. Ten tribes there, the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom, two tribes, which was known as Judah. And the northern kingdom fell to Assyria in the year 722 B.C. Now, I know this may be getting a little bit technical, but history is important. The northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria in the year 722 B.C. Israel, the northern kingdom, never had a good king. All of their kings were rotten, evil, corrupt. Not a single good king in their entire history. And they fell to Assyria. God used Assyria as his rod of judgment against Israel. In Israel, the northern kingdom fell, 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, Judah, had a few good kings. Um, they weren't all bad. They had a few good ones. And so Judah held on a little bit longer. They lasted a little bit longer. But eventually Judah as well fell to God's judgment. And this happened when the Babylonians came and uh, besieged Jerusalem. And this is the opening of the book of Daniel. The first raid of Babylon occurred in the year 605 B.C. First raid of Babylon led by Nebuchadnezzar. And this is where the book of Daniel opens. There were two more raids. The final raid happening in the year 586 B.C. And that completed God's judgment against Judah as well. So Israel, the northern kingdom, had been under judgment. They fell some time ago. Judah held on a little bit longer. And as we open the book of Daniel here, first verse, this is the first reign of Nebuchadnezzar into Jerusalem. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, to understand something of what was going on here in the mindset of these Jewish people in Judah when Nebuchadnezzar, leading Babylon, came and besieged Jerusalem. We have to understand a little bit about the mindset of the ancient Near Easterner to war. For the ancient Near Easterner, when they looked at war, basically, whichever side won that war had the strongest gods. So whichever side prevailed, that side, the victorious side, had the stronger gods. And so what does it say to these Jewish people in the southern kingdom, Judah, when they look up in their beloved city, Jerusalem, had been laid siege by the Babylonians, and they were stuck. They were surrounded. They had been conquered. What does that say to them? In their mindset, that says to them, our God is weaker. The Babylonian gods are stronger. Yahweh has been defeated. Yahweh has been defeated. The pagan Babylonian gods, those are the stronger gods. Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. But look at verse 2. 
Look at verse 2. It says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The writer of Daniel, Daniel, is being very careful with the names that he uses all throughout the first chapter. And the word here for Lord, the name Lord in the Hebrew, this name for God is the name Adonai. Adonai means ruler. It means boss. It means one who is in control. This is not something that caught God off guard. This is not something that took him by surprise. This is not something that God simply allowed to happen. This is something that God caused to happen. God orchestrated. It says the Lord, Adonai, the one who is in control, he gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hands of the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. God orchestrated this. He caused it. So even though to these Jewish people in the southern kingdom, for all intents and purposes, when they looked around them, it looked like Yahweh had been defeated. It looked like their God had lost and been defeated by the pagan Babylonian gods. But the writer here, Daniel, is being very careful. He is saying, no, God has not been defeated. Adonai has done this. Our God has done this. This is not something just that he allowed to happen. He caused it. This is by his hand. And so, dear friends, God is in control, even though it may not seem like it. Even though circumstances may seem to indicate otherwise, God is in control. This is not something that caught God off guard. And, you know, sometimes when we look at the world in which we live today, we look at the world scene. Sometimes it seems like things are just spinning out of control, doesn't it? I mean, it just seems like the wheels are coming off. Wars, rumors of wars. You look at what's going on in the Middle East, what just happened in Paris a couple of days ago. Uh, the The whole Middle East is just an absolute disaster. Absolute basket case. Russia's flexing its muscles. North Korea. Sometimes it seems like things are just spinning out of control, does it not? But dear friends, even though it may not seem like it, even though circumstances might seem to indicate otherwise, God is in control. God is in control. These are not just things that God is allowing to happen. He is causing them to happen. Adonai is in control. We look at our own country. In our own country, it seems to be coming apart at the seams, does it not? I mean, the last eight years have been a disaster. We've been on a downhill slope for a long time. And just here in the last few months, the United States Supreme Court has discovered some constitutional right for homosexuals to marry. We'll be looking at that, of course, tonight. Seems like the wheels are coming off. Nowadays, you, you, you can't even trust to go into a, uh, if you're a woman, you can't even trust to go into a women's restroom and, and expect to find just women in there. And that, you know, now men are being allowed to go into a, a woman's restroom because they feel like they're a woman. You know, it, it, it seems like everything is absolutely upside down, like nobody has any common sense anymore. The wheels are coming off. But dear friends, even though it may not seem like it, even though circumstances would seem to indicate otherwise, God is in control.
This is something that God has done. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. So what Nebuchadnezzar was doing here is he wanted to bring in some of the young men of Judah, and he wanted to use them for his own personal service. He ordered some of the sons of Israel. These were young men, probably between 15 and 17 years of age, young men, and these were sharp young men. It says that they were, they were good looking. They were physically fit. They were very intelligent. So this was some of the cream of the crop of Judah. Some young men, very strong, very intelligent, and he wanted to bring in these young men and use them for his own personal service. Youths in whom was no defect. Very sharp young men. And it says that he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans were the elite class in Babylon. They represented the intelligentsia of Babylon. These were these were the smart guys. These were the wise men of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to bring in some of these young, sharp, intelligent Jewish men, bring them in, and he wanted to brainwash them, basically, for three years. He wanted to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldean system of, of education, system of knowledge, was thoroughly pagan. It was very anti-Yahweh, very anti-God. Now, I'm, I'm really glad that we don't have to worry anymore about the higher-ups and the intelligentsia uh, teaching our young people anything that's contrary to Yahweh and, and biblical truth. We don't have to worry about that anymore, thankfully. That's, that's all in the past, right? Nothing new under the sun, is it? Nothing new under the sun. The king appointed them, now watch this, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So the king figured that this period of brainwashing would probably take about three years. Verse 6, Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Four young men. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 7. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now, if you were to go into just about any evangelical church today, get up on Sunday morning and say, raise your hand if you know who Hananiah, Azariah, and uh, Mishael are. Probably not a lot of hands would go up. But if you were to say, uh, raise your hand if you know who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. Every hand would go up just about. We know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't we? We have songs about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
because their names kind of rhyme a little bit. They have a little bit of a cadence to them. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Everybody knows them. Well, what if I were to tell you that it's really unfortunate that we know these young men by the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because those were their pagan names. Their Jewish names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these names mean something. And Daniel here, as he writes, is being very careful with his use of names. Daniel, the name Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means Yahweh is my help. So their original names all point to God. They all point to God, to his character, to his nature. They all say something about him. Their new names also mean something. Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, means protect the king's life. Bel, the, the king, pagan king. Protect Bel's life. Hananiah's new, main, new name, Shadrach, is a reference to the command of Aku, which was a pagan god, moon god, in the Babylonian system. Mishael's new name, Meshach, means who is what Aku is. Now, remember... Mishael's name means who is what God is. His new name, Meshach, who is what Aku is. A direct affront. A direct challenge. A slap in the face to Yahweh. It's like the, the gauntlet has been cast down. Who is going to emerge supreme? Adonai, Yahweh, or the pagan Babylonian God? Marduk was his name, by the way. Not the, not Marmaduke, but Marduk. Azariah's new name, Abednego, means servant of Nego, another pagan Babylonian deity. So all of their Jewish names point towards God. Their new names point towards pagan kings or pagan deities. It's kind of a shame, isn't it, that we know these young men by their pagan names. Now, verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, this is a bit of a surprising verse when you think about it, because up until this point, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they had pretty much gone along with everything. New system of education? You want us to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans? All right, that's fine. You want to give us new names? Whatever floats your boat. But when it comes to the king's choice food, and with the wine which he drank, Daniel and his friends said, no, not going to do it. Drawing a line. Yeah, we'll go along with the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. We'll go along with your little dopey system of education, sure. We'll, we'll even take the new names. They didn't really have a whole lot of choice. But when it comes to taking the king's choice food and the wine which he drank, uh-uh, not going to do it. You see, the pagan Babylonians, they could try to re-educate them. They could even give them new names. 
But one thing that they could do, could not do is they could not change their hearts. They could not change their hearts. And Daniel and his friends made up their minds, purposed in their hearts, that they would not defile themselves with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Now think about this. Think about the pressure that they must have been under. Here they were. They belonged to a conquered people. They, were, they had been taken away from their families, their homes. They were in a strange land hundreds of miles away. You know, they didn't just take them around the corner. They were, they were a long way away, hundreds of miles away from where they had been raised. They were, uh, they were having to speak a new language. And they were a minority, both religiously and ethnically. They found themselves in the heart of the Babylonian Empire. So they were a minority. And think about this, too. They were teenagers. These were teenagers going up against who was, at that time, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar. Can you imagine the pressure? How would we have reacted to this? If this, is, if this had been you and me, would, would we have had this kind of resolve? Daniel made up his mind. His friends made up their minds. It said, some of your translations may say they purposed in their hearts that they would not defile themselves with the king's choice food or with the wine which they drank. Why? Why did they draw such a deep line in the sand when it comes to the food and the drink? For a couple of reasons. Number one, Daniel and his friends knew that that food had been already offered in sacrifice to pagan idols. And to partake of that food would be tantamount to approving the, the pagan deities. And Daniel and his friend wanted to have nothing to do with it. They, went to, they didn't want to do anything to in any way compromise their fidelity to Yahweh. Their fidelity to Adonai. So they didn't want to partake in that food that had been sacrificed to idols. But another reason, I believe, is that Daniel and his friends knew that they were about to be tested. They knew that they were about to be tested. And I believe that they knew that they were going to emerge victorious in this test. And they didn't want any of the credit to go to Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't want any of the credit to go to his food or his rich food or his wine. They wanted all of the credit to go to the one to whom it belonged. And that was Yahweh. Daniel and his friends made up their minds. They purposed in their hearts that they would not defile themselves. Dear friends, underline that in your Bibles. That they made up their minds. That they purposed in their hearts that they would not defile themselves. That is so very important for us to do. They didn't wait until the time came. They set out beforehand. They purposed in their hearts beforehand that they would not do this. As believers, you and I need to purpose in our hearts that we will not defile ourselves with sin. That we will not allow ourselves to be put into compromising situations. We need to make up our minds, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to allow myself to be, to be in a compromising situation. Because... Nine times out of ten, 99 times out of a hundred. If you just say, oh, well, well, I can dabble in it. I, I can get close, but I won't, 
I won't go over the edge. You allow yourself to get into a compromising situation in which you are being tempted, 99 times out of 100, once you get to that place, you're going to fall. You're going to fall. Purpose in your heart beforehand that you will not defile yourselves with the things of the world. This is the mark of genuine believers. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This is the mark of someone who truly knows God. Now, notice, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they weren't alone. They had friends with them. They weren't the only ones that had been taken into, the, into uh, Babylon, Babylon. They weren't the only ones that were being brainwashed. There were 50 to 75 other young men as well. But only these four, only these four purposed in their hearts that they would not defile themselves. There were other young men. They had other they had peers with them who were also good looking, who are also physically fit, who are also very intelligent. But apparently only these four did not defile themselves. A lot of people think, well, I go to church and so I'm okay. I go to church. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. You know, my granddad was a was a preacher. My dad was a preacher. I, you know, I, I teach Sunday school. I'm a member of a church. I'm a member of a Christian community. These other young men, they were also members of a quote unquote religious community. They were Jews, but they apparently succumbed to the pressure. They succumbed to the temptation. Withstanding temptation, even when it is hard even when it may mean significant cost to oneself. That is one of the marks of a genuine believer. They purposed in their hearts that they would not defile themselves. Verse 9. This is, oh, excuse me, verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind. He would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials, that he might not defile himself. Notice the humble attitude that Daniel had towards the commander of the officials. He did not demand it. He sought permission. Very respectful. Verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God honored their obedience. God honored their obedience. He granted them favor. God, God gave Daniel and his friends kind of a, a friend on the inside. This Ashpenaz, the commander of the officials. He worked for Nebuchadnezzar, and yet God in his sovereignty softened Ashpenaz's heart towards Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, gave him a friend on the inside. And he said this, verse 10, The commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. The commander of the officials is saying to Daniel and his friends, Look, guys, I like you. I don't know why I like you, but I do. God working behind the scenes. I don't know why I like you, but I do. And I'd like to help you. I really would. But if I help you, you've got to understand... I may forfeit my head, literally forfeit my head, but God granted him favor 
He gave him a friend in Ashpenaz. Verse 11, but Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 12, Daniel says, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the other youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel is saying this, please, and again, the respect, please test your servants. We're your servants. Test us. Give us 10 days. Let us eat nothing but vegetables and drink nothing but water. And at the end of the 10 days, then observe our appearances as compared to the other youths. Remember the other guys. For 10 days and see how we do. And so Ashpenaz, the commander of the officials, acquiesced to this. He agreed to it. Some people have taken this passage and they've made a diet out of it. The Daniel diet. You heard of this? We should eat like Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They probably say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we should eat, we should eat like Daniel and his friends. This is the, the Daniel diet. We should eat nothing but vegetables and drink nothing but water. And that's why Daniel and his friends prospered. That completely misses the whole point of the text. Daniel and his friends did not prosper because of the food. They prospered in spite of the food. To make a diet out of this is completely missing the point of the text. You know, this is not saying that we should be vegetarians. Honestly, I'd rather stick my face in a fan than go a week without eating meat. This isn't, this isn't a, a diet that misses the point. They prospered not because of the food. They prospered in spite of the food. Daniel and his friends were the only ones who remained faithful. Verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter. And he tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had, who had been eating the king's choice food. Now, when we, when we read fatter here, it doesn't mean that Daniel and his friends became plump little roly-polies and, you know, they were fat. That, that doesn't mean that. They were, they were fleshed out. They were full, vigorous, strong. Their appearance was better. They were stronger than the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Verse 16. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine which they were to drink, and he kept giving them vegetables. He kept giving them vegetables. God honored their obedience. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. God honored their obedience. You know, there's a lesson here. God always, always honors obedience to his word. We never have to wonder about that. We never have to wonder if God is going to honor my obedience to his command. With Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, God gave them a tangible reward, if you will, for their obedience. He gave them Ashpenaz, 
the chief of the officials. He gave them a friend on the inside. God honored them in a tangible way. In verse 17, God increased their wisdom. Increased their knowledge, intelligence, and every branch of literature, wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. God honored their obedience. Does God always honor obedience? Yes, He does. 100% of the time. Does God always reward us in a tangible way as He did with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? No, He doesn't. No, He doesn't. Read through Hebrews chapter 11. These great men of the faith. They were lauded for their fidelity to God. They were lauded for their obedience to God. And what did it get them in a tangible sense? It got them stoned. It got them put in chains. got them imprisoned. Beheaded. Sawn in two. It's not a real seeker sensitive kind of message, is it? Come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you just might get sawn in half. God honors obedience, but He doesn't always honor it in a tangible sense, this side of heaven. On the other side of heaven, yes, He will. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. But here, not always. But dear friends, even if we do not see a tangible reward for our obedience, for our fidelity to the Word of God, obedience is its own reward. Obedience is its own reward. Having a clear conscience before a holy God, that, that is a reward. And knowing that we are obeying God for His glory, that is the reward. Even if we see nothing else, even if we see nothing tangible, that is the reward. Obeying God, that is the reward. Verse 18. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what happened between the end of verse 17 and the beginning of verse 18, you've got that two to three years. Remember that brainwashing period? It said it would take them about three years. That's, that's, that three years is sandwiched in between the end of verse 18, excuse me, end of verse 17 and beginning of verse 18. Verse 19. The king talked with them, Nebuchadnezzar talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Out of them all, not one was found like them. Now let's read this in the way in which the original recipients would have read this book. Out of them all, not one was found like God is my judge. Out of them all, not one was found like Yahweh is gracious. Out of them all, not one was found like who is what God is. Out of them all, not one was found like Yahweh is my help. Out of them all, dear ones, not one will we find like Jesus Christ. The wisdom of the world is nothing compared to the wisdom of God. Being a slave to sin will earn us nothing but death, eternal death. But I would rather be a slave to Christ and be killed in this life than be a slave to sin, enjoy this life from a humanistic perspective, and die and go to hell. Out of them all, not one was found like 
Yahweh. Out of them all, not one found like Adonai, the one who is in control. Even though it may not seem like it, even though circumstances would seem to indicate otherwise, God is in control. God blessed them with understanding. It says that the Bible says that they were found ten times better than all of the magicians and all of the conjurers which were in all the realm of the Babylonians. Ten times better. And I think this is a figure of speech. Truth be known, they were many, many times better. Far wiser than the wisest of the wise Chaldeans. Many times wiser. Psalm chapter 199, verse 100 says this. Psalm 199, verse 100. The psalmist says, I have more insight than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. First glance might seem like a rather arrogant thing for this psalmist to say. He says, I'm wiser than all my teachers. I understand more than the aged. Why? Not because he was all that intelligent. Why? Because the testimonies of God, God's Word, has been the source of his meditation. I want to read to you uh, a quote, a little bit of an extended quote, a couple of paragraphs out of a book by J.C. Ryle, uh, John Charles Ryle. Uh, J.C. Ryle was the... Uh, he was the bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s. This little book, How Readest Thou? If you go to Amazon and get this little book, How Readest Thou? by J.C. Ryle. What a wonderful, excellent little book. But I want to read to you a little bit of what he says. J.C. Ryle says this, and this in context of what we've been talking about, the, the wisdom of God as opposed to the wisdom of man. J.C. Ryle says, A man may have prodigious learning and yet never be saved. He may be master of half the languages spoken around the globe. He may be acquainted with the highest and deepest things in heaven and earth. He may have read books till he is like a walking encyclopedia. He may be familiar with the stars of heaven, the birds of the air, the beasts of the earth, and the fishes of the sea. He may be able to discourse of all the secrets of fire, air, earth, and water. And yet, if he dies ignorant of Bible truths, he dies a miserable man. Chemistry never silenced a guilty conscience. Mathematics never healed a broken heart. All the sciences in the world never smoothed down a dying pillow. No earthly philosophy ever supplied hope and death. No natural philosophy ever gave peace in the prospect of meeting a holy God. A man may, may be very ignorant man and yet be saved. He may be unable to read a word or write a letter. He may know nothing of geography beyond the bounds of his own parish and be utterly unable to say which is nearest, Paris or New York. He may know nothing of arithmetic and not see any difference between a million and a thousand. He may know nothing of history, not even of his own land. But knowledge of the Bible, in short, is the one knowledge that is needful. A man may get to heaven without money, learning, health, or friends, but without Bible knowledge, he will never get there at all. A man may have the mightiest of minds in a memory stored with all that mighty mind can grasp, and yet, if he does not know the things of the Bible, he will make shipwreck of his soul forever. Woe, woe, woe to the man who dies in ignorance of the Bible. Verse 20. 
For every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the conjurers who were in all his realm. God has emerged supreme. Yahweh, Adonai, the one who is in control, the one who had been challenged. Remember who is what Aku is? God has emerged supreme. And look at verse 21. It says, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. It does not mean that he died then because Daniel lived through the entire Babylonian captivity. Daniel continued continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Notice who outlasted whom. God is my judge. Outlasted the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. God is in control. He is sovereign. Even though it may not seem like it, even though circumstances would seem to indicate otherwise. And God rewards those who obey Him. Maybe tangibly, maybe not. Maybe our reward we will not see until we get to the other side of heaven. But God rewards obedience. Obedience is its own reward. As I close, I just want to close briefly with the Gospel. Do you know this God? Don't think just because you're in church that you know this God. Daniel and his three friends apparently were the only ones of the 50 to 75 youths and their peers. Apparently it was only these four young men who truly knew God. Do you know Him? Has there been a time in your life when you've been convicted by God's Holy Spirit that you're a sinner? That you have broken God's laws? And just like when we break laws on earth, there's a penalty to be paid. How much more so when we break the laws of the eternal God? And dear friends, if we die in our sins, we will very rightly, very justly, go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell. And we will be there for all of eternity. That is what our sins have earned us. We deserve that. That's the bad news. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there is good news. And the good news is this, is that God, in His infinite mercy, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ willingly laid down His life on the cross and He bore the wrath of God so that you and I would not have to. He was perfect. He had done nothing wrong. He was the Lamb without blemish. And yet He willingly laid down His life on the cross and He bore God's wrath so that you and I would not have to. And the way to have that penalty of sin removed, that stain of sin, the wrath of God removed, is to turn from sins, repent of sins, and place our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. His death, His burial, and His bodily resurrection. Salvation is not of works. We cannot earn it. Daniel and his friends did not earn God's favor. They trusted God. Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you truly repented of sins? Do you have a love for the brethren? Do you have a love for God? Do you have a desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a godly sorrow over your sin? Do you have that Psalm 51 
sorrow over sin. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Do you have that godly sorrow? Have you confessed your sins before Him? If you're not sure of where you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're not sure of where you would go if you were to die today, cry out to God. Confess your sins to Him. Ask Him to grant you repentance. Genuine repentance is granted by God. There is salvation in no one else. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do, we do thank You for this time today. We thank You for Your Word that You have preserved for us. We thank You that we can look at Your Word and we can see how You have dealt with uh, humans in, in history. We can see your, how you, your, your abhorrence of sin. We can see how pure You are, how holy You are. And so, Father, as we have gone into your word today, we pray that it would be an encouragement to all of us who have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. Lord, for those who are here who have not yet done that, we pray that your Holy Spirit would truly do a work that only he can do, that he would convict of sin, convict of righteousness and judgment, and would grant repentance, remove the hearts of stone, Replace them, hearts of flesh. Grant repentance. Make people alive in your Son, Jesus Christ. All for your glory. We thank you for your sovereignty. We rest in it. We love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.